Good morning. morning. And let's begin class with prayer this morning. Gracious Father in heaven, we are so thankful for your abundance of blessings and love, and we ask that your spirit will join us and lighten our minds, and let this message about you just shine through the world that you will come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. I want to thank Vensi Bosef, who invited us to Sofia, Bulgaria. We were there for a week, and it was an amazing experience. Spoke in public lecture halls, and for the first three nights, it was standing room only along the sides, 70 people in the overflow out in the, out in the hallways uh, waiting to listen, and everything was being translated into Bulgarian, and so it, each program lasted two hours. On the third night, we moved over to a University of Sophia lecture hall, and then on Sabbath, we were in a hotel convention center. And the book, Could It Be This Simple, is now available in Bulgarian, and don't worry, none of you can read it unless you read Cyrillic, and I can't even recognize my name on this thing. Uh, But people were really responding well and enjoying it already. Been out about six weeks by the time I got there. The past conference president said that this was the most successful and well-attended church event in Bulgaria since 1993. Huge positive responses. Three out of four attendees were non-church members, so it was really reaching out to the community. And Christy and I had such privilege to see, as we were presenting these ideas about God's design law, about his plan to heal, about freedom from this imperialism, God's not being authoritarian, you could see the freedom and the the burden were being lifted off of people's uh, hearts and minds. One lady came up to us after one of my presentations, which I did some science ones like depression ones and developing brain ones, and uh, she came up after the presentation holding the copy of the Bulgarian version of Could It Be This Simple, and she pointed to the subtitle, where, uh, she says, uh, where it says biblical, and she says, anything that ever had Bible on it, I would never read it. But after your lecture, I'm going to read this book. So that was very, very nice to hear. I had five translators, different ones that I worked with while I was there. One of the translators who did my talk, The Science of Belief, and then did an hour of question and answers afterwards, after it was all done, she looked at me and said, "Uh, I'm an agnostic, but I really like the God you presented here. So one little girl came up to me after the program, and she handed me this card. And this is the card she handed me, and it says, thank you, and she's four years of age. Aaliyah, four years of age. And then another lady came up and uh, gave me a hand-drawn picture of Jesus that uh, she had uh, done, and that was a gift from her. So we really appreciate all the love and support uh, that we experienced while we were there. And we want to thank all of you and our online uh, family for supporting us and being able to reach out and share. So we're doing lesson number five in the quarterly's Family Seasons, and the title is Wise Words for Families. Wise Words for Families. And as we get into it, one of our online listeners sent us a um, quotation from Ellen White Manuscript Release. That uh, His name's David Siebert uh, from South Africa, and this is just a quotation he sent us this week. There are those who suppose that they are set to guard the actions of their brethren and sisters. And if these souls step out of the line that they have marked out, they think that they must put on the restricting line. Oh, what a farce this is. Such a course is not after God's order. He invites, in all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. Let no human agency seek to outline the duty of his fellows or to force his opinions upon others, lest he get in the way of the Lord's counsel. 
I think that's quite profound because I think sometimes in systems of religion, people think it's their job to tell other people what the Lord would have them think or how they would practice. And our job, of course, to come and reason is, and I've said this over and over again, I'm not here to tell people what to think. I'm here to present ideas and stimulate and motivate people to think for themselves and come to their own conclusion. So uh, Sabbath's lesson in the second paragraph, it says, whatever our situation, whatever our phase of life, the book of Proverbs contains a combination of instructions, poems, questions, and wise sayings. Family relationships are directly addressed, and other words of wisdom can be applied to the home. Proverbs is, in fact, cast in a fa- as a family document in which keys to godly life are handed down from parent to child. Just as the parents might write a letter of advice to a son or daughter going to college, setting up the separate dwelling, or taking a job away from home, so Proverbs is addressed from father to son. Uh, quoting Proverbs 1.8, My son, hear the instructions of your father and do not forsake the law of your mother. The quote that I just read, Proverbs 1.8, is this a proverb to be applied to all people? In other words, you read the Bible proverb, here's a proverb, and this applies to everyone. Or is this proverb specifically for this son? Well, if you have a healthy parents, it might be wise. So what's that word if mean? It's conditional. Oh, so it doesn't apply to every every son, does it, or child? I look at it. If you have a healthy parents, yes. But sometimes you have a say a criminal parent who, or a mob parent, or somebody who's trying to get you into what they do, or something. Does it matter what the parent is teaching the child as to whether the child should adhere to the teaching of the parent? Does that matter? Yes. Or should the child just be taught a proverb? Listen to what your father says. What if the parent is teaching the child lies? Or destructive principles? Should the child, as the child grows into adulthood, continue to follow such destructive principles? Or should the child, at at some point, reason for themselves, evaluate God's word for themselves, understand God's principles for themselves, and if the parent was out of harmony with God and God's principles, should the child still follow the parent or follow God? I just point that out. When you read a proverb, it has to be understood the, the meaning what are the keys to a godly life? What would you say the keys? This is the Proverbs gives us keys to a godly life. What are the keys to a godly life? What would you say they are? I listed a few, but I'm sure they're not all the keys. Doesn't Jesus say this is life eternal that they might know you? Do you trust and open your heart to somebody you don't know? So I think one of the keys is to come to know God. And then when you come to know God, you trust him and open your heart to him as you're saying. I know you assume that to be true, but, but I wanted to point that out because I have many people who come to see me and their friends tell them, well, you wouldn't be so stressed. You wouldn't have so many problems if you just trusted God. And, I said, and, and they say to me, well, I, 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 just, I, don't, I just can't trust God. And I say, if you were in a mall and somebody come up to you and tapped you on the shoulder and said, uh, hey, let me have the keys to your car and keys to your, your, your house. You, you can trust me. Would, would you give them the keys to your car, the stranger? If you can't trust a stranger with the keys to your car and house, how can can you trust a stranger with the keys to your life? That's why the Bible says, life eternals, they might know you. The first step isn't to trust God. The first step is get to know God. That's the first step. And then once you know him, think about the people in your life you trust. If there's somebody in your life you really trust, how did it happen? Did they walk up to you as a stranger and say, hey, trust me? Or did you get to know them And once you got to know them, you trusted them because they're trustworthy. And the trust isn't really hard when you know a trustworthy person who loves you and will sacrifice to protect you. 
So that's the key. First key, I think, is to know God. And then John 8, 32, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Primary truth about God. That's the primary truth. And then, of course, Psalms 119, 165, great peace have they who love your law, nothing can make them stumble. When you hear that, what law construct do you have in mind? Design law, creator, God who builds reality? Or do you hear the word law like humans? A system of rules that we make up that we then punish people who break. Is that how we view God? That he's waiting to punish the rule breaker? Or do we see him as the creator and his laws are actually all the protocols upon which happiness, health, and life are built to operate? And thus when you understand those protocols, like saying great health have those who love your laws of health. Sunday's lesson, first paragraph, it says, The godly person reserves, if not married, and preserves, if married, his or her deepest affections and sexual intimacy for marriage. Men are specifically addressed in Proverbs, but the same idea as, as, the same idea as it relates to women is expressed in Song of Solomon. The powerful attraction of illicit love must be weighed against the horrific consequences of this sin. Casual liaisons lack commitment, and therefore are far, fall far short of true intimacy. Material, physical, and emotional resources are squandered. Most important, one, one, most important, one must answer to God for the choices made in life. What is the problem with committing adultery? The lesson suggests the problem with this sin is that you must answer to God. Before I even say yes or no on that, I want you to diagnose, diagnose here. From the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Ideas expressed are expressing ideas of the heart of the person. So what does the idea that the problem with sin is that we must answer to God reveal? What does that reveal, that idea? When somebody tells you that. In other words, why would the lesson be saying that the problem with adultery is that we must answer to God? What's the underlying belief that causes them to think that? That God will punish you? What's There's really no problem with it. It's just that God will be mad at you. There's really no problem with it. It's just God will be mad at you. And these, are, these are all connected, but that's not the root. They're coming from the root. There you go. The root issue is God's law is imposed. That's the root issue. That it would function like human law. He's got a rule, and if you break his rule, then he'll hold you accountable for it. This leads to questions like the one I got from a high school student when I was doing a talk on human sexuality to the the Christian high school, and the Christian high school student asked the question, if God will forgive you, then why can't you have sex before marriage? Do you see the problem in the question? What's the assumption? The assumption is what's the wrong? What makes it wrong? What makes it wrong is what God will do to you. He's got a rule, and and he'll hold you accountable, and he'll punish you. But if he forgives you, it's like if, if you speed and every time you speed, the judge forgives you and pardons you and, and doesn't hold you accountable, then what's wrong with speeding? He forgives you every time. See, that's a human law. Speeding, 35 in a 30 zone, every time you do it, the judge gives you a free pass. There's never anything wrong going 35 in a 30 if every time the judge gives you a free pass. So this would be like asking the question, if your father forgives you for smoking two packs of cigarettes a day, what's wrong with smoking cigarettes? But see, now when I put the cigarette question there, people immediately realize, wait a minute, this isn't about a a punishment received by the authority. This is about damaging the laws of health, which actually destroy. And and people who 
view this idea that we are held accountable to God do not believe God's laws are design laws. They believe the Roman lie that God's laws function no differently than human laws. And so answer the question, what actually makes it wrong? What happens to somebody who commits adultery? What happens to them? And they say their spouse never finds out. Spouse never finds out on this earth. What happens inside them? Do they have more peace? Do they have more joy? Do they have more contentment? Do they have more happiness? Or do they have more fear? A fear of getting caught. More guilt. More shame. Do they begin to distort and tell lies? Do their character begin to shift to hide themselves? Do they live in uh, fear of getting caught? In other words, are they searing their conscience, warping their character by living that way? Can they avoid that consequence as long as they live that way? Does God have to send an angel to cause that to happen to them. It's unavoidable. It's design law. People who teach this other thing, they actually are teaching Satan's lie about God and God's law, that God's law is a system of rules, and God is the source of the suffering and pain that he puts upon people for breaking his rules. And therefore, people end up being more afraid, about, more afraid of God, who's trying to save them, than the sin in their life, which is killing them. Seriously. And that's why so many Christian theologies are designed to hide us and protect us from God. Think of functionally about all the things that are taught, and the things are taught to shield us so God can't see us, cover us, wash over us, have somebody plead for us, all these things because we really don't trust him to see us. But when you understand design law, you pray like David. And how did David pray? Father, search me and see the wicked way in me, created me a clean heart, O oh God. It's like going to the doctor when you're sick. You're not asking the doctor to examine a healthy person and write a healthy person's findings in your record. You're asking the doctor to find everything that's wrong because you know when he does, he'll heal it. That's what we want our God to do for us. Now, is, is adultery the worst sins that people can commit? This is out of the book called Steps to Christ, page 30. It says, God does not regard all sin as equal magnitude. There are degrees of guilt in his estimation as well as that of man. But however trifling this or that wrong act may seem in the eyes of men, no sin is small in the sight of God. Man's judgment is partial, imperfect, but God estimates all things as they really are. The drunkard is despised and told that his sin will exclude him from heaven, while pride, selfishness, and covetousness too often go unrebuked. But these sins are especially offensive to God, for they are contrary to the benevolence of his character, to that unselfish love which is the very atmosphere of the unfallen universe. He who, fa- he, he who falls into some of the grosser sins may feel a sense of his shame and poverty and his need of the grace of Christ. But pride feels no need, and so it closes the heart against Christ and the infinite blessings he came to give. What do you hear being described here? Why does God dislike or judge, conclude, diagnose pride and selfishness to be more serious than adultery or drunkenness or drug addiction? Why? Because you don't recognize it. You don't realize. See, the other sins can bring you a sense of guilt and shame and and you're not at peace with yourself. But pride can numb a person to actually think that they don't need any improvement, any transformation, any healing. 
The successes in this world and a proud attitude, especially if you've got a system of religion that gives a certain checklist that you've been able to keep, that certain check, like the Pharisees, that certain checklist that you've been able to keep can cause you to feel like you're good. This is actually why leprosy was a metaphor for sin. Leprosy does not cause tissue damage. Leprosy damages the pain fibers so you can't feel pain when you're damaging yourself. Touching a hot stove, cutting your finger, you don't feel it. You don't pull your hand off a hot stove until you smell the flesh burning. And so leprosy, a metaphor for sin, sin sears the conscience so you're no longer sensitive and you damage yourself more. That's why it was a metaphor. And the reason it says not to judge others uh, of the sins, because basically you tend to see others through your own perspective. And it says this, <laughs> the things you judge in other people are in fact the things you do. But you see it more in them, you don't see it in yourself. You're exactly right. So why is it that Satan attacks humanity so viciously in this aspect of our being? This aspect of our being is designed by God to be the greatest level of human bonding and unity. And adultery is a breach of trust. It breaks down trust and causes guilt, fear, shame, and isolation. It isolates hearts away, fearing they won't be loved if people know they've committed some act like this. God is the God of love and unity. Satan is the father of disunity, and he wants to fragment relationships and isolate people in guilt and shame. He knows if he can get people to commit these types of sins, that they are living in fear and shame, and they will isolate and not really open their hearts to other people, to true, bond, to true bonding. Think about how many times uh, God, in describing his relationship with us as being unfaithful or committing adultery, so it has to be very important. Exactly. Relationship. It goes to breaking the family unit is what it goes to. Which is always a, a breach of love and trust. So why is adultery wrong? Is it because that we have to answer to God and God will use his power to punish? Or is it breaks the actual protocols of life causing injury, pain, suffering upon those who do it? Proverbs 5, 21 to 23. For a man's ways are in full view of the Lord, and he examines all his past. The evil deeds of the wicked man ensnare him. The cords of sin hold him fast. He will die for lack of discipline, led astray by his own great folly. What do you hear? Do you hear God causing pain and suffering? Or do you hear that everything happens under the awareness of God, but the sinner is entrapped by his own patterns and habits of behavior and his refusal to allow God to heal him. Last paragraph, it says, in the human fallen condition, uh, sexual instinct can lure individuals away from the divine design for human sexuality. However, God also has given human, humanity the power to reason to choose. These temptations, if not continually suppressed, can become overwhelming. A firm commitment to the divine design for sexuality and marriage can prevent the development of illicit uh, relationships. Is this type of sin an unpardonable sin? Think about Judah visiting the prostitute, which was his daughter-in-law, I believe. Think about David and Bathsheba. Think about Solomon with 700 wives and 300 concubines. Think about many of the patriarchs that practiced polygamy. Think about Simon the Pharisee and Mary Magdalene. Did it, any of those people lost because of these sins? 
or did they all come to repentance and experience healing of their heart? So they changed and became faithful and loyal and trustworthy. Is having this type of desire, this physical longing, is, is having the desire longing sin? No. God designed us to have this type of desire. It is not wrong to have the desire. It's what we do with the desire. And Satan has got us to exploit us with this desire for several reasons. One, like the child or the, uh, the high school student's question, misunderstanding what makes it wrong. If it's simply wrong that it breaks a rule, and I know God is forgiving, and there's nothing, and you've heard this, I've heard this in adolescent sermons a lot, there's nothing you can do that will cause God to love you less. And there's nothing you can do that will cause God to love you more. You know, those, those are true statements. And then when you understand those statements through the wrong law lens, then you think that it doesn't matter what I do. Because the problem you see in the wrong law lens is, well, God will get unforgiving or mad or, or judicial or wrathful or punitive in some way. But, but if he, there's nothing that can make him love me less, then, then it doesn't matter. Well, that's right. He will love you just as much as you destroy yourself. It's like the father doesn't love his child less who smokes two packs a day. He loves them just as much. But their health isn't just the same. Our characters are not just the same when we do these things. But, but I don't think it's simply desire, a physical longing, that causes this type of problem. In my practice, I actually think one of the bigger reasons this happens is that there is insecurity, emptiness, and loneliness that causes people to want to be loved. They're actually longing for love. And they're substituting the physical act for actual love. I think that is more often the problem than simple physical desire. Additionally, one in three women are sexually assaulted or exploited in some way before the age of 20. Such assaults, can alter a person's developing sense of self, and if not properly healed, result in significant insecurities, fear, inadequacies, desires to be loved, and thus more physical acting out in the pursuit of someone that will like me. It results in distortions in their own thinking about themselves, like I'm ugly, I'm dirty, I'm worthless, I'm ruined. What difference does it make anyway? And so much of this behavior for young people who have been exploited as children is actually not a, a behavior of selfishness seeking to exploit another. It's a acting out or a, a symptom of brokenness that hasn't been healed. With that in mind, this, in other words, trauma issues that are that are that are impacting real life decision making. On, on my trip this past week, um, and sometimes when I travel, I read books. I was reading a fictional book entitled "The Dawn of Wonder." by Jonathan Renshaw. And I'm going to share a section of this book with you, but I'm going to set up the scene before I do. In this book, the, the, the main character's name is Aiden, and he was raised by an abusive father who beat his mother. And at a young age, he tried to intervene to protect his mother, and his father began to beat him severely from that point onward, and he suffered many beatings at his father's hand until the age of 12 when he left home to enroll in an academy to train marshals. Uh, Aiden's uh, past abuse caused him significant shame and fear. And whenever he was in a situation with, with aggressive confrontation, his fear would well up and see his father and he would freeze. 
and who failed to protect his friends on several occasions because of that past trauma, which only caused him more guilt and shame. Near the end of the book, he finds himself in a situation in which he and a teen female friend are about to be attacked by a brutal murderer. He wants to act to to protect his friend, but again, he's paralyzed with fear, and suddenly a life-changing experience happens to him. And I'm going to pick up the story at that point, and I want to see if you can see in this story any elements of God's plan to heal us from sin. And I'll, I'll say also, do you see anything that describes the cleansing of the sanctuary and the investigative judgment in this fictional story? So I'll pick it up here. This was it then. All his life had been for nothing, for waste. Like arrows raining down in a thick and deadly hail, sharp thoughts began to run through him with such speed that everything else turned to a nightmarish stillness. He had failed. Failed Calvary, failed Lurie, failed Peshot, Hadley, Osric. He had shamed himself and disgusted all who had supported him. Perhaps it was right that it should end here. He had caused enough ruin. Shaft after shaft pierced his mind, shafts that quivered and rang and screamed of pitiful failure and utter worthlessness. What was the point of living when he would continue to fail those who, le- who leaned on him? Then from within, another thought rose into the chaos of his hammering, shaking mind, a thought that stood out with icy clarity. He knew where the blame lay. His father. His father had planted the weakness in his bones that had caused him to wilt before Dresborn, before Ivor, before Fenn, and before Rourke. It, it had meant injury not only to him, but to those he cared about. Aiden's long brood, potent swill of violent resentment bubbled up inside him, turning his vision black. He would hate his father forever. Even in the grave, this hate was the one thing that couldn't be taken from him, the only thing left to him. A faint, choking sob tugged at his ear. Did not listen, because everything suddenly disappeared. It was like being struck through by solid light. Heat built up in his chest until it seemed it would burn him to to cinders, but instead it worked on him like the warmth of the morning sun. Power was crackling and sparkling around. Then he heard a voice that was like the roar of thunder and the gurgle of a stream. A voice as old as the sky, but filled with the lightness of a child's laughter. Aiden, it said. And in that one word, there was enough to make his heart burst. He was already on his knees, and and he was glad of it. He could not understand what was happening, but he wanted to kneel before the one who spoke with this voice. A warm, singing wind rose up, and as it blew, the statues misted and dwindled away until they were gone. Around him was starlight. His feet touched the ground, but it was like standing on clear ice, for stars glittered far beneath him too. The singing began to build, a growing, thrilling exaltation that all but seared him with with its beauty. Then it was as if a shroud made of stars was dropped. At first he could see nothing but the brilliance of pure, solid light pouring down around him. When his vision cleared a little, he found himself before a great throne, It was not just a chair. It was more like a mountain before which every other mountain would be dwarfed. The upper reaches rose among the stars, lost to his eyes. Then, like an eruption of all the lightning ever ever to burn the skies, the throne was filled, and Aiden immediately dropped his eyes before the one who was simply beyond the limits of sight or comprehension. The radiance was overwhelming, and in that untainted light there was no hiding. Of all the times he had ever found himself where he did not belong, 
None came anywhere close to this. Never had he fallen so far short of the requirements for entry. Yet here he stood, and there was no bluff, no excuse, no argument he could make for himself that would hold up in this place. Until now, he had always thought of himself as good and noble of heart. Yes, there had been some wrong choices, but it was an unasked-for history that had forced him into those paths. Those choices were his father's doing, his father's fault. He was damaged, not guilty. He had loathed himself at times when seeing the warped changes taking place, but how could he blame himself? Measured against his father and any of the tyrants he had known, it was obvious that he was on the better side of the line. Reasoning this way, he had always felt justified. Aside from a few smudges, his soul was clean. But now, instead of being compared against dirt, he was searched by the radiance of utter purity. He gasped at what was revealed. He stood as a hog dripping filth, a hog that had somehow slipped into the royal throne room, blinking and stinking and realizing for the first time that there was a measure as high above the ways of the sty as life is above death. What answer could he make? As he lowered his gaze, he saw that he was holding a deep cauldron. When he looked inside, he almost vomited. He did not need to be told what it contained. It was the vile mixture of all the hatred stored and brewed for his father, the debt he had kept that he intended to settle. It was his treasure. Kneel, the voice said, shaking the ground. He tried, but the cauldron was as big as a storage vat. It prevented him from reaching his knees. Afraid to look up, he cringed, fearing that he would be told to release it, knowing he could not, would not, and dreading the wrath that was to follow. I'm sorry, he whispered, thinking not only of his unbending knees, but of all the filth of the sty that he had brought with him and his inability to rid himself of it. He would be thrown out. He, would be, he should be thrown out. That would be justice. He began to turn away. The next words were quiet, but they caused every muscle to lock and hold him in place. If you choose, you may walk away from me, Aiden but I will not walk away from you. But I, I don't understand, Aiden stammered. Am I here to be punished? You are here to be freed. The words rumbled like an avalanche, and the shudder of Aiden's chest was beyond any emotion he had ever known. That word, kneel, echoed again in his mind. In it rang not the groans of enslavement, but the song of freedom. He knew why. It was about belonging, the right kind of belonging. It was isolation that led to enslavement. He had discovered that. Though there was more to fear before this throne than 10,000 giant beasts, it was not wrath, he sensed, or dread that welled up in him. An invisible torrent surged from the throne, washing through him, wrapping around him. He felt as if he were a fish that had hatched and managed to survive in a muddy pool of a dry riverbed and now was being swept up into soft, clear water. It was unlike anything he could define. This was defining him. And then he looked into the cauldron. The fumes were poison, and the container stood between him and the throne. It blocked part of the life-giving flow, leaving a shielded place where bitterness still coursed through his veins and gathered in dark clots. Did he really want this? The decision was more intimidating than a bridge or cliff jump, 
but he drew his breath and in his mind leapt free of the old dark refuge. He tried to pull the cauldron away from him, but he could not. It was as if it had grown into his skin. Help me, he cried. There was no surge of power, just the faintest tingling in his arms. He looked down and pulled again, and this time he tore it, it tore partly away from his skin. The pain was intense, and as the raw skin was exposed, he felt suddenly vulnerable, for the cauldron had been a kind of shield. But from the river that was rushing around him, he drew courage and wrenched again. The cauldron ripped free, and once it had torn loose, he flung it down to the ground where the noxious liquid poured out and was washed away. Finally, he was able to fall to his knees, and as he did so, the stains that covered him began to fade. Then, from a distance, he saw his father. His fists clenched automatically, and he felt something in his grip. It was a dagger. He understood at once what he needed to do, what he had never been able to do before. Looking at his father, looking not at his father, But towards the foot of the throne, he opened his hand and dropped the blade, releasing judgment to one higher. As the dagger melted away, light flooded that part of him that had, that he had kept hidden behind the cauldron, kept in bitterness and shadow. And he yelled with fright as what was revealed, crouching in that inner bastion of hate, that long-guarded place where he had so often fled and braced himself with fantasies of revenge. He saw it. It was not strength that had kept him company in that place, but a coiled, venomous thing of fear, his numbing, paralyzing fear, a lying, twisting demon that now looked up at him with more hatred than he had ever known. But the light that illuminated suddenly became solid, a pure, rushing torrent. It struck the twisted shape with power both infinite and effortless, tearing it loose and flinging it out, its screams fading to nothing. The bitterness and poison slowly washed away. It was peace, deeper and broader than the starfields around him. It was belonging. It was freedom. Kneeling before the one who could only be the ancient one had not been the cost of freedom, but the means. For a long time he laughed and wept and laughed again, released. Any thoughts? Did I put you, did I put you to sleep? Did you hear what the obstacles were? What was in his way? What was stopping him from finding peace? Okay, wounds that led to core primary emotion, fear. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and hid because they were afraid. Perfect love casts out all fear. You will find the root of almost every problem people have is some form of fear. Fear of rejection, fear of abandonment, fear of loneliness, fear of not being loved, fear of not being good enough, fear of financial ruin, fear of of embarrassment, fear of humiliation is almost always some form of fear. And did you hear in the beginning how he started out with these piercing thoughts of self-condemnation? He's not good enough. He doesn't deserve it. But it wasn't really his fault. It was done to him. Now, while the trauma was done to him, who was responsible for holding on to bitterness? And hatred. I just thought it quite profound. Can you see the investigative judgment and cleansing sanctuary elements that we've been talking about in our pamphlet described in this fictional story? The searching of the individuality of the soul to purge the defects 
that destroy and damage, to bring healing and purity. I thought it was quite profound. I really enjoyed it. Monday's lesson, first paragraph, it says, The characters of fathers have a direct impact on their children and the legacy they pass on to them. Children look to their fathers for support, devoted affection, guidance, and modeling. Proverbs lauds those fathers who are reliable providers and wise managers of family resources. Many are the ways in which the greedy bring ruin to their households. Fathers must be mindful to give priority to family over work. Godly fathers seek to be patient and in command of their emotions. They respect their children's, in, uh, their children's dependence upon them. They discipline their children, but are careful not to abuse their position of authority. Most important, dedicated fathers want to follow God, to be controlled by his love and by the teaching of his word, that they might guide the feet of their children in the right way. So, if you had to list qualities of healthy fathers, what qualities would you list? And I'm sure I do not have a complete list, I just have a list of some. Kindness. Kindness. Patience. Patience. Unconditional love. Unconditional love. Yeah. Other? Appropriate behavior towards their children. Appropriate behavior. We should understand design law and be able to teach it. Thank you. No, all these were right. No, seriously, my first one is love for God and others. I think love, but then understanding design law is really valuable because it really changes every action you take with your child. Why you do what you do. Because everything when you love and you understand design law, then you know breaches of design law are going to be harmful to your child, and you're doing everything to keep your child in harmony with how God constructed life. It makes all the difference in the world. How about ability to listen and understand? Is that a good quality? How about self-governance? The ability not to fly into rages or have addictions or have spending problems? How about a willingness to tolerate emotional discomfort to do what's good for their family? How about setting and enforcing healthy boundaries? Good time management. If parents had all of these attributes we've described here, had all, let's say all of them, will that guarantee that their kids will grow up to be godly? You are a wise audience. That's exactly right. I mean, just look at God and Satan. Who could have been a more uh, balanced and and, uh, life-love-giving father than God, and yet Satan turned out as he did? Exactly. Exactly. And God and Adam and Eve. God a bad parent? You know, that comes from that Proverbs, raise a child in the way he should go, and when he's old he won't depart from it, which I think is a mistranslation. It should raise a child according to his way, and when he is old he will not depart from it. In other words, let the child be in charge of its rearing, and you can be sure the child will grow up self-centered and narcissistic and won't depart from it. Yes? Are you a good father for your children, a good father for your community? And can there be a difference? I think it's the same. Yeah. Good father for your children, good father for your community. I guess it could depend on the community to live in. I mean, if you're a good father for your children, you'll be an example to your community. Okay. I like the example for your community, but that doesn't mean you're conforming to the community. No. Okay, good. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Second paragraph says... In the end, the most important thing a father can do for his children is to love their mother. His faithfulness and continuing affection for her, or the lack of these, have a telling effect upon children's well-being even into adulthood. What does it look like to love the mother? What does that look like operationally, functionally? Loving others more than self. Loving her more than self, so that functionally looks like 
looking out for her best interest, her welfare, protecting her, being a husband in the true definition of the word, sacrificing, how about, does it include cherishing her, valuing her? Would that include valuing her ideas, her perspectives? I've seen, I've seen relationships where people love a person but don't really value their ideas. They're protective of that person. They treat them with kindness, but their ideas are not important. Is that loving them, really? Go ahead. They fall short of respect. Ah, yeah. So what about speaking honestly in kind ways? Would that be part of loving her? Um, a father can do for his children to, to speak kindly but honestly to his wife, even if he doesn't like the meal she cooked. Should he tell her? Even if he doesn't like the new haircut she's gotten, should he tell her? <laughs> Warning, what you say, Trenton will be used against <laughs> In my view is absolutely tell her. But don't tell her in a way that compromises liberty. Say things like, hey, if you like your hair that way, I want you to have it that way because I want you to feel the best about yourself that you can feel. But I just want you to know, I don't like it as much that way. I like it better the other way. But you do it whichever way you want. You're asking for trouble. No. No, actually, I'm not. That's how I do it in my marriage. That's exactly how I do it. And let me tell you why. Let me tell you why. Because if you're not honest with your spouse, on some level, they can pick up on that dishonesty. Oh, that's fine. I love it. It's great. It looks awesome on you. But if you say it that way, they know you're being disingenuous, and there's an undermining. You don't respect them or have enough confidence in them to be honest with them. You treat them as if they're a child and can't handle your actual true perspectives. Additionally, it undermines trust in you because you're basically saying, you like everything, and so when you actually do like something, it's no more valuable than when you don't like something because everything's always yes. Everything's always great. Yes. Is that being a false witness by saying that? By saying yes when you don't mean it? Yes. Mm-hmm. You're being a false witness. Yes. You're lying to them. <laughs> so lying, lying and bearing false witness are different, different things. Right. Okay. If you say you like the hair and you don't, that's lying to them. Yes. That would, but lying and bearing false witness are not the same thing. Rahab lied. But she did not bear false witness against her neighbor. It's not just even bearing false witness. It's bearing false witness against a heart cause harm. That's the commandment. Let's talk about lying. Rahab lied, and she's in the hall of faith for it. And she's the progenitor of Christ. And she was saved, one of the saved, because God likes people lying or God likes people self-sacrificing for others. If you were one of the spies of Israel on the roof hiding under the flax, and the, 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 the guard came looking for you, knowing that if you're found, they're going to kill you. And you're praying to God, because you would have been praying, I promise. Dear Lord God, please, please help Rahab tell the truth. Is that what you pray? Don't let Rahab bear false witness at this moment. Don't let Rahab fall into sin. Please help her tell the truth at this very moment. Well, then why were you hiding? Why didn't you go down there and turn yourself in? So you're saying situational ethics, more lying? 
I'm saying that the principle, when you, when you approach reality with an imperial law model, a system of rules, then you actually cause harm because it's about the do's and the don'ts. But when you understand the reality of design law, it's always about love, and love does what's best interest of other people. And Rahab's uh, actions were self-sacrificial. She put herself in harm's way to protect another. Nowhere do you find the Bible saying, well, lied, Rahab. But you do find the Bible saying, well, loved Rahab. Okay? Now, it's very possible if Rahab had been mature as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, if she'd been that mature and the spies had been that mature, it's very possible that she would have told the truth and the spies would have been brought down and they would have been put in some type of a circumstance like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and and God would have delivered them and the whole city of Jericho would have been converted. That's possible. It could have gone that way. But it required a higher level of maturity that Rahab didn't have. But Rahab was just coming to God as an infant, if you will, and she identified with him and she exercised faith and trust and put herself in harm's way. So it's not about the deed. It's about the motive of the heart. But if you're an imperial law person, well, your motive isn't really the issue. It's the behavior you do. And so I would agree with you that, uh, that it would be bearing a false witness. And in this case, in a trust-love relationship of marriage, it would be harmful. It would not be an act of love. It would be an act of self-service. The reason people don't tell their spouse the truth about the hair is because they don't want to be, deal with the stress and the consequence of, of seeing that person get their feelings hurt. But if you're married to someone who's so fragile that they can't actually understand that, hey, I love you, and if you want your hair that way, do it that way. I supported you 100%. But you've asked me what I like. I don't like it that way. But I still love you even if you do your hair that way. This is how you ask the question. <laughs> yes. I think that um, if you view marriage as a team rather than as a you and them, if you look at yourself as a team, there isn't... If there's only one person winning in that team, then the team itself has lost. Yep. In teamwork, only the team wins or the team loses. So if you truly are a team, wouldn't you, just like a team, evaluate your weaknesses, your strengths of the team, bring what you each have to the table, have something strong, evaluate how to solve the weak things, and work together as a team for success. You can't do that in a... In a Fear-based. So if you love your spouse, are you honest with them? I will tell you, my wife does not like my hair as short as I cut it. When I get a haircut, you can see the scalp sometimes here on the side. She doesn't like it that short. And I love her still. And it's okay. But I like it that short. And she loves me just as much, even if I get my hair cut that short. And so it's okay. I'm aware of it. But it's not a deal breaker. It's okay. <laughs> yes. But your relationship is mature, just like you mentioned with Rahab. You know, there's a, there's a maturity level that will grow within an individual. If uh, marriage is not to that maturity, you might not want to jump that. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's listen to this. I love Russ. Thank you so much for saying this. Thank you so much. So he's, and this is exactly right. People are different maturity levels, right? Absolutely true. And some relationships may not be mature yet. So do we get more maturity by lying? By deceiving, by not being open, by not being honest. Does that help us grow into maturity? The only way we'll actually grow to maturity is to actually start being open and honest, gently, slowly, okay? But you have to move that direction. I I agree with you that some are fragile. Some, I will tell you, 
the first time you do this, if you've never done this, and you say, you know what? And there's lots of ways. This meal, how do you like that new, that new recipe I just tried? There's a hundred ways to do it. You want to do it graciously and kindly. But, the, but, but my, my style is, thank you so much for cooking for me. It means a lot that you cooked this meal. But we can leave this one off future mem- menus. <laughs> Seriously. If you love it and want to cook it, cook it for you again. But, but I'm going to eat something else. Okay? I have no problem with this. What, was, what is wrong with that? Is there any harm? Is there any insult? Nope. You're, you're communicating honestly your own taste, and taste is individual. That's all you're doing. What about to your hair? Shouldn't, out of your love and affairs to your wife, shouldn't you be happy? I mean, this goes in the context of what you've said so many times in the past. Shouldn't your, your love and your deference to her preferences, shouldn't you be wearing your hair longer? So, no, no. You, 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 you use the word should. No, that's the wrong word. That's an obligatory word. The word should have been, could you choose to wear it longer? Yes, I could. That's an option. Or I don't have to. Love will not be compromised or injured either way I wear my hair in a love relationship. It won't matter. I'm going to jump up to Wednesday's lesson, and we might come back to Tuesday, but I'm going to jump to Wednesday's lesson. And Wednesday's lesson talking about a merry heart does good, does good like a medicine. And in the, in the lesson, I have a lot of um, uh, articles that I've cited here about the health benefits of laughter. The health benefits of laughter. So some of you have laughed here today. It was healthy for you. Uh, when you laugh uh, regularly, a very healthy laughter, you actually get physical exercise uh, that uh, can be aerobic in nature if you laugh regularly. Um, cardiologists at the University of Maryland found that patients who were suffering from heart attacks, myocardial infarction, were 40% less likely to laugh regularly. H- however, people who laugh regularly had protection against heart attacks. There's reasons for this. They looked at it. When you laugh regularly, you produce more of a chemical called nitric oxide. Nitric oxide is a vasodilator. It helps your blood vessels dilate. But um, when you don't laugh regularly, when you're highly stressed, it reduces nitric oxide. In fact, um, laughter increased blood flow by 22%, whereas stress decreased blood flow by 35%. So that's a 57% swing in blood flow between laughter and stress. Yeah, it's, there, is actually a, there is actually one. It's called Viagra. <laughs> that's exactly what it does. It increases nitric oxide, which increase, increases vasodilation and blood flow. That's how it works. Um, laughter has shown to increase your um, various immune mediators. So people who laugh regularly uh, have better immune response, uh, better interferon uh, gamma, uh, which has actually been now demonstrated to help because of the laughter studies and showing that when you laugh regularly, you increase interferon gamma. Interferon is now used as a treatment for viral infections, systemic cancers, hepatitis B and hepatitis C and is part of the antiretroviral drug regimens. And where did they discover it? But it's what you increase in your body when you laugh regularly. There are two types of stress. Uh, negative stress called distress, and positive stress called eustress, which is what you experience when you laugh. 
Distress increases your stress hormones, corticotropins and catecholamines and so forth, but laughter decreases these stress hormones and activates your body's natural killer immune cells, uh, making you less likely to suffer from infections. Does this now give us any insight? The science I just shared with you about laughter give any insight as to why, why the Bible says the Sabbath must be called a delight. What happens if you're a Sabbath observer, but you observe it under a system of imperialism? God's got a rule. It's his law. And on this day, uh, he has his angels monitoring. And if you break his law, then there's a demerit that goes in the heavenly register, and then you will be punished. So the day becomes a day of all the checklist things that you can and can't do. And it's a stress day. And you become like the Pharisees in Christ's day. Very, very religious in your observance of your behaviors. What do you think is happening in you? Are you actually a Sabbath keeper? You're not a Sabbath keeper. This is sadly many, many people that I know. Sadly many, many people that I know. The key to all of God's laws is understanding their design laws. The real benefit of God's laws and keeping his laws are always transformational on us. They bring us life. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving or bringing life to the soul. When you understand that, then you eagerly want to participate in all of his designs because it's how life works best. You see, love cannot be commanded. Therefore, we cannot enforce God's laws with threats. The only way to truly keep God's law is from a free heart. To promote the kingdom of God is to promote the methods of love, truth, and freedom. And so one of the founders of the Adventist Church wrote in Desire of Ages 22, The earth was dark through misapprehensions of God. That the gloomy shadows might be lightened, that the world might be brought back to God, Satan's deceptive power was to be broken. His deceptive power. What's he deceiving us on? Look at the next sentence. This could not be done by force. The exercise of force is contrary to the principles of God's government. Do you think the world has been deceived to think God's government runs by the exercise of force? He desires only the service of love, and love cannot be commanded. It cannot be won by force or authority. Only by love is love awakened. To know God is to love him. His character must be manifest in contrast to the character of Satan. This work only one being in all the universe could do. Only he who knew the heights and the depths of the love of God could make it known. Upon the world's dark night, the son of righteousness must rise with healing in his wings. You see? And there's a couple more quotes that we expand in the, in the notes. I don't have time to go into them today. But when you understand how reality works, and we leave this fantasy of, of, of much of what Christianity teaches, it's a fantasy that I believe that, that God is a being who imposes rules and is the source of inflicted pain and punishment from whom we need to be protected. That is not reality. Reality is God is the creator who loves you so much that he's done everything to provide for your health and welfare and restoration. If you will simply trust him, he'll fix the brokenness. This is the righteousness by faith message. This is the sanctuary message. This is the investigative judgment message. This is the, the three angels message. These are all the messages of scripture that are the same that I, through my son Christ, have provided everything you need to fix and heal if you'll simply trust me. Our gracious heavenly father,
We thank you that you're such an amazing God of love. And we ask that your Holy Spirit will enlighten our minds and pour out the brilliant rays of truth upon us to shine into the deep recesses of our own hearts so that whatever cauldrons that we are holding that is hiding us from your cleansing presence will be removed and you can restore your fullness in us and that we can be lights in this world. We pray in your holy name. Amen.